We're going to begin teaching on church discipline tonight, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5, and for a title, if you need one, I'm going to call it Putting Away the Wicked One. And so, you know, most churches that we have in America today do not practice any form of church discipline, and for the most part, you know, they would consider a lack of love or a lack of God's grace, or they would say, you know, you're overstepping uh, the right of the church, like, who are you as a church to judge me? And that's the way a lot of people would look at church discipline. And really, a lot of that attitude, I believe, is just a result of a lack of teaching. So we're right back to where we were a few weeks ago with Acts 2.42. You know, the pillars of the church have to be the apostles' doctrine. So when things aren't being taught or things are being left out or when the word's taught, it's being twisted, then people don't have a right understanding of how things should go in a church. But God's word is clear and unambiguous, very clear about church discipline, as we'll see tonight. And here's another reason why churches will avoid it, because it is unpleasant. Because if you're a parent tonight and you enjoy disciplining your kids, there's something wrong with you, right? I mean, actually, for me, it makes you a little sick inside, doesn't it? I mean, it really should. But you know, if you're a responsible parent, you're going to do what needs to be done, won't you, as far as disciplining your kids. So it doesn't make you feel good, but you're going to do it because it's for the good of the child, isn't it? And it's for the good of your own household. We need to do it as Christians just out of love and respect for what God says in his word. Because just the disciplining of a child, he tells us clearly that we should do that, right? So as far as church discipline goes, we'll see clearly tonight that this is just not a one-man obligation, that the whole church is involved scripturally when church discipline takes place. So we are responsible as a church for the discipline of another member. It's not just a burden put on the pastor or the pastor's responsibility. It's a church responsibility, and it is a grave responsibility and one we should take seriously. So if you're there in 1 Corinthians 5, we'll just read the entire chapter. It's 13 verses, and then we'll unpack it. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I truly, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying, he writes to them, is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, Paul writes, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle or a letter not to company with fornicators, but yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. 
for then you must needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer, that's an abusive person, or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do you not judge them that are within? And he's implying by that the answer is yes, they should judge those that are within the body. Verse 13, but them that are without God judges. So he goes on to say, since you answered yes, you should judge those that are within. He says, therefore, verse, the end of verse 13, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So let's, we're just going to kind of walk through this chapter tonight. And beginning in verse 1, you know, you, you kind of get the sense when you just read that first verse that Paul is shocked. And you could kind of hear it in the tone of what he's written. He's saying it is reported commonly. And he says it is not so much as what is named among the Gentiles. Like it's reported commonly and something that's not even named among them is going on in that church. And what you have to realize is Corinth was a church that he planted personally. Paul did. The apostle Paul. And what does that tell us? If he could plant a church and it could fall into this kind of sin, it could happen anywhere, couldn't it? Any church. If the one Paul planted had that problem, it could happen here, it could happen anywhere. And here's the terrible part for Paul is he's saying it is reported commonly. That means it is generally known. It's not just limited to a few people. It's out. The word's out on this church. And he's got a problem with that. And so what is that sin done that has become public? It has done what to this church's witness? It's ruined it, hasn't it? To some degree. It's witness. It's light. It's salt. It's affected that. It's effectiveness in the community it's in and in the world. And guess what else it's done? That churches stand for the gospel. Because what is the gospel? That God can take a wicked sinner like we are and change his heart and transform him and forgive him, but transform him into a new creation. And so what has this sin done? It has ruined that. Or attempted to. I keep saying ruined. I mean, it would have had to have some effect in the world's eyes. So that wickedness is being displayed in the church. And it's, he's like, it's a wickedness that even the world would condemn. And you all are allowing this to happen, is what he's telling them. So you go on to verse 2. And here's the thing, he is really most upset that this sin is not being dealt with. That's got him more upset than the heinousness of the sin. That's got him upset too, but it's the fact these people aren't dealing with this sin in their church. And the church has said what to be in verse 2? He says, you are puffed up like a balloon filled with air. He's like, you're proud about what's going on in your church. What are they puffed up about? I mean, I'm not exactly sure, but it could just be they like maybe this guy's a prominent person in that community. And they like the fact that he has joined their church. Oh, isn't this just great? You know, he's adding a little respectability to our church now because maybe he's a prominent man. Maybe he's a great teacher. It doesn't really say. I'm just surmising. But for some reason, they're puffed up. He's decided they're joined their church. 
brought a little respectability, and they're like, well, we can overlook a little fornication. You know, he'll deal with that sometime later in time. And Paul gets on him, though, and he says, how can you be puffed up over this man and his sin in your midst? He said, instead, what does he say in verse 2? He said, you shouldn't be puffed up. Why are not you mourning what's going on? And that word for mourning there means you should be grieving. It's the word for grieving over sin, whether it's your own or whether it's another's. He said, you shouldn't be puffed up about this. You should be mourning, grieving over what's happening. He's telling them like he would if it was somebody talking to us here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly. He says, you're, you're family. And you all, a lot of you have known each other for a long time. And some kind of sin like this was going on. He's saying, you should mourn. You should mourn that in your midst is someone you know that's guilty of crimes that have to be dealt with so severely. You should mourn that you have to remove this person, somebody you've known. You should mourn that the Lord Jesus Christ is offended. You should mourn that this person is going to have to be given over to the devil. That shouldn't be something you'd be puffed up about. You should mourn that the reputation of this church, as he just said in verse 1, has been marred in the world and in the community. And you should also mourn, you know, no sin is isolated. No man is an island. And when any of us sin, especially grievously, other people are hurt. There's no way around that. And that's another reason they should be mourning. This person's affected and hurt other people. And he says, so you should be grieving and not puffed up like something great is going on. But here's the thing. Look at the end of verse 2. If they are mourning, it will lead to action. And he says, you should have mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from you, from among you. So if sincere, that mourning is sincere, it'll lead to something. It'll lead to the removing of the sinning member is what it'll do. But here's the thing. People that have a problem with church discipline and that it happens, what they don't understand is God's holiness. They have a problem with God. They don't understand God and his holiness. So if you could... Put something there in 1 Corinthians 5 and turn back to Numbers 25. And maybe this will help us get a little understanding about God's holiness and how he looks at sin in the camp. Numbers 25, beginning in verse 1. And here we're going to see where mourning leads to action. <clears throat> and... Numbers 25, verse 1, it says, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel. And what were they doing? Because of this judgment God had brought, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. 
And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them. And what was he zealous for? God's holiness and God's honor. That I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, behold, I give unto him, here has how he honored him, my covenant of peace. And he shall have it in his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood. Why? Because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that was slain with the Midianized woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a prince of the chief's house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianized woman was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was head over a people and a chief house in Midian. They were, that guy came in there, they were prominent people. He wasn't puffed up. He didn't have any respect for these people that are prominent people, the woman's family or the man's. You know who he feared and had honor and respect for? God. And God honored him for it. So the morning we see at the end of verse 6, the children of Israel, it says at the end of verse 6, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And I guarantee you that Phineas was one of them. It led to the action of verse 7 and 8 where he took that javelin and he had the zeal of the Lord. And justice was executed. And God's holiness was vindicated. That man paraded that woman, it says, right in front of all of Israel that has just been chastised with judgment. That is arrogance. That should have brought up a little something out of old Phineas and maybe a few other people, shouldn't it? Right in front of everybody, that is blatant arrogance, just thumbing his nose at the Lord and God's people. So go to 2 Corinthians, because after Paul, we just saw in verse 2, he is on that church at Corinth. He said, you should have mourned and grieved and gotten rid of that person rather than being puffed up about it. And so when he rebukes them, Look at what they did. They took to heart what he said, this church. So look in 2 Corinthians 7, and we'll begin in verse 8 and read through verse 11. So 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, it says this, for Paul wrote, he's talking about that letter he wrote to him. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though it were but for a season. And now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow, it works. It works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world works death. And here is the repentance they had after he rebuked them. Verse 11, he said, For this, behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort he says, what carefulness it worked in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. 
And he says, in all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And I'm so the, some of those words in verse 11, I want to go back through. So when he says, what carefulness, he said, I rebuked you and you became repentant and sorry. And he said, it worked a carefulness in you is what it says in the King James. And that is a diligence that somebody that is going to carry out their duty. And they're like, hey, we didn't take care of business before, Paul. We needed that rebuke, but we are going to take care of business now. And he's saying that's what their repentance as a church did. And he goes on to also say there, what clearing of yourself. And it's where we get our words apologetics. Because what they're saying is we, we got on top of things and we've taken care of it now. That's what he means by that clearing of yourselves. And then that word indignation, that word means annoyance from unfair treatment. And so they're saying, what did we let that guy pull over on us? They're indignant about what's happened, what he's done to this church. When they realize the impact of what Paul has said to them hits them, <laughs> they have indignation over it. And then it says they have vehement desire, and that is a longing. And so what he's saying is they are longing to get things right with God, to make things right that they let go. And then he talks about what revenge. And that word for revenge there means they carried out justice. They did what was the right thing to do because built into man is a sense of right and wrong and what is just and unjust. And there's nothing wrong with that. This person needed to be dealt with. And for them to deal with him, it was not an unjust thing. It was what needed to happen. And he said as a result of that, look at the end of verse 11. He says, in all things, because of all of what I just said, you have approved yourselves to be clear. I don't know what the other versions say, but that word means to be pure. So dealing with this situation, he's saying now as a church, you are clear or pure. And it is the Greek word, the root of that is where we get the Greek word for holy. You've gotten rid of that sinful man, the wicked person, and he says now because of all that, you've taken care of business, Paul is telling them, you are now clear. You're pure. You're a holy church because you've done what I said. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5. And he goes on to tell them then, verse 3, he says, Even though he is not physically present in Corinth, but by the Holy Spirit in his spirit. That's what he means there when he says, it's a little tricky to... He says, I'm verily, I'm absent in body, but present in spirit. So he's not having an out-of-the-body experience, okay? Because he'll talk about he prays in my spirit in 1 Corinthians 14. Well, we know that it's his spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit in his spirit. That's what he's saying here. So he's present in spirit, the Holy Spirit, and he's made a judgment. Do you see that in verse 3? Verily is absent in body, but present in spirit. He says, I have judged. I've made a judgment. I've reached a decision. By weighing the facts. That's what that word there, judged, means. And he says, I have judged this man. I have judged already this man. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I thought the Lord Jesus said that we're not to judge others in Matthew 7. Well, what's he talking about there? He's talking about a critical, hypocritical, and a self-righteous judgment, right? Where you're on somebody's case in a critical way. You're, you're not doing it in love 
or you're doing the same thing you're doing, but you are all over their case, that's a hypocritical, or you're self-righteous, like, well, I could never do what that guy's doing. And that's bad news there. And Jesus says, don't do that, because what measure you meet out like that, it's going to come right back on your head. That's what he's talking about. But that is not what Paul is talking about here when he says, I have judged already. Because in John 7, Jesus says, we are to judge, but how are we to judge? With a righteous judgment. John 7. And anyways, if you go on and read Matthew 7, he talks about when they come to you in sheep's clothing and inwardly they are ravening wolves. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. He's saying, you, de you better make a judgment. And how are we to base that judgment on? Their fruit. He says, you will know them. And in that, you will make a judgment by their fruit. Because he says it is impossible for that bad tree to bear good fruit. It cannot happen. And it also is impossible for a good tree to bear bad fruit. And so all you got to do is watch that tree for a little while. More than a day. More than just listening to what they say. I meet tons of them at prison. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you got talkative. And they can talk scripture. They can say everything that a Christian should say. And there's a guy there that does that, and he smiles, and he reads all these Christian books, and then I find out he's in the hole because he exposes himself to other men. And so there's a problem there with that, isn't there? You'll know them by their fruits. Just hang around them long enough. And he steals Bibles from us. That says he needs Bibles, he sells them for money. Takes, tries to take advantage of us that way. And that's all that Paul's doing here. He's saying, I can judge. I'm not judging critically hypocritically or self-righteously, I am judging by the fruit I'm seeing. And what he's judging this man by, this is not a one-night stand, he's saying. Look, look back in the end of verse 1. It says that one should have. It's a present tense. He's sleeping with this woman on a continual basis. This is not a one-night stand. Continuous, long-standing sin is what characterizes this man here in 1 Corinthians 5. You're right there in 5. Look over in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Look what Paul writes here. He says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? He tells them, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, None of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived and think, if that's you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't deceive yourself and don't let someone else deceive you. Because he goes on to say in verse 11, such were, past tense, some of you. But now, he says, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're holy. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so that list he's giving there... In verse 9, it's what characterizes these people. That's their lives. That's what characterizes them. It's not a one-time thing. They are fornicators. They're drunkards. They're extortioners. That is them. That is how they're living. And he's saying if that's the way you live, don't deceive yourself. Say whatever you want to about Jesus as Lord and all that. You will not make it in. And don't let someone else deceive you that you know lives that way, that everything's okay with them. That's what he's talking about. So he's not saying, hey, 
A lot of us got bad past. So he's not saying if you have been a fornicator or a drunkard, you're not going to make it in. But he's saying that's your past. Now he's saying your present status is you're washed, sanctified, and justified. Praise the Lord. Right? But as for this man, as it stands with him, Paul says, I've made a judgment. And he's saying this man, as he stands today, when I've made this judgment, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's unrepentant, he's living in sin, and he shows no signs of the new birth. And Paul says what? He's got some strong language if you go back and read this. He says that you should purge him out. And at the end of verse 13, he says, remove that wicked person. Calls him wicked. Now that's some strong language, I think. Very strong language. And look at verse 4. He says how, he tells us how this is to be done. How is this man supposed to be removed? Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together. So he's saying when the church is gathered together, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they're brought together. And so where does that authority that he's using there, where does that come from? So it doesn't just come from Jesus it comes from, what does he say? Look in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord of the church and the universe and everyone else. That's where the authority comes from. Let me ask you, so he's saying the church and him have this authority. When was this authority given? And who has the authority? So put something, keep something there in 1 Corinthians 5. Turn back to Matthew 16, please, if you would. Matthew 16, and we'll begin in verse 16. It says, And Simon Peter answered and said, Jesus asked, Who do you say I am? He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed on in heaven. So it appears if, we just, if this was all we had, that that authority and those keys was given to Peter alone. Because he says, I give unto you, or thee, and it's a singular. Now that wouldn't appear to be the church, right? So he's giving him the keys. Let me ask you a question. What do keys do? Open doors, don't they? Let somebody in. And what else do they do? Hopefully it happened at my house. They lock the doors to keep somebody out when you're not there, right? That's what they do. So right there it looks like it's just Peter, but just turn over a couple chapters to chapter 18. Now the context of chapter 18 is what we're talking about tonight is church discipline. And we're going to cut in on this because in the coming weeks, I want to teach on, I'm doing it a little upside down. I would have started here, but we're in 1 Corinthians 5, but we're going to come back and go through this entire chapter in the coming weeks. And we'll begin in verse 1 and we'll go through the end because it all ties in together. But right now we're going to cut in the middle of it because I want to see this principle of the keys and the authority of the church. We'll start in verse 15. And it says, Jesus is telling them, moreover, 
If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he will hear thee, you have gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, than in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto who? The church. Isn't that what it says? But if he neglects to hear us, the ecclesia, the church, then what does it say the, the results are? Let him, this person that won't listen to the church, and he's already been through these other steps, let him be unto thee, the church, as what? A heathen man and a publican. And here, look at verse 18. So he says, truly I say unto you, whatsoever, it's just the same thing he said to Peter. Now he's saying to the church, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you, verse 19, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So the Lord, as we clearly see there, he's given the same authority to the church that he gave to Peter. So let me tell you, when Peter died, the keys weren't lost. They really weren't. They weren't lost. They're passed on to the church of which Peter was the foundation. The 12 apostles were the foundation. And so the person with the keys has the power to let in and the power to exclude. And the church now has the power to bind and the power or the right to loose. So to bind, when the church does that, as we're seeing here, as it's done in Matthew 18, they're declaring that this person is forbidden based on his conduct. Or they could say when they loose that this person is permitted to enter or remain based on his conduct or profession of faith. That's the right the church has. That's the right we have as a church. Well, you say, man, that's a lot of power given to fallible men. You know, what if they make a mistake? The church just doesn't make, has the right to just make decisions on their own, or we're just going to try to make up rules as we go along. So things don't work that way, because here's the thing, that decision to bind or loose has already been made in heaven. So the church is just simply being guided by God to decide what God has already determined has been bound or loosed according to his word. And you're like, where do you get that from? Well, we're in Matthew 18, 18. I'm saying this is not a very good translation in the King James because what we have here is, it should read this way, Truly I say unto you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound. In other words, it's already been done in heaven. That's the way the Greek reads, believe me. I don't like throwing Greek around and makes whatever, but I'm telling you, that's what the Greek reads. Shall have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So I'm saying the church is only deciding what heaven has already decided. That's what it actually says there. So it's not like we declare this person out or in, and then heaven decides, oh, yeah, I'm going to co-sign that. No, we are already just saying we are just declaring what God has already declared up in heaven, here on earth. So in this discipline, and what's going on here in Matthew 18, when they say, and he shall be unto thee a heathen man and a publican, the church is deciding and declaring 
that a person that once was a brother or sister is unrepentant and cannot at this time be considered a brother or sister any longer. Because a heathen and a publican, if I have to tell you, that doesn't mean they're a Christian. That means they're unregenerate based on what we're seeing as a church. That's what Jesus says. Do you all see that there? Look. Let's look at it again. Everybody's looking at me awful hard. Verse 17, and if he shall neglect, this person's unrepentant. They don't want to hear the church. He's been in sin. The whole church agrees on it. Tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear that church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. I'm saying that's to be unregenerate. So the local church has heaven's authority for declaring who is a kingdom citizen. That's what we just read. And therefore, who represents Jesus' name on earth? What I'm saying is our power is declaratory. In other words, we can't make somebody a Christian or unregenerate, right? Do we understand that? So us saying it doesn't mean make it that way. No, you know, we'd call somebody a heathen. If they're not, we're not making them a heathen, right? But we're just saying it's based on something. It's declaratory. But we have the responsibility as a church, we just read it, to declare who does and who does not belong to Christ's kingdom. And we have the power to either receive somebody in the fellowship, and that's what is taking place. When a person comes and wants to join this church, we're saying, okay, you've repented of your sins. We're acknowledging that. You've given yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, exercised faith in him. You've been properly water baptized. We recognize just from what we can see, they could be lying. Right? We have the sheep and the goats, but we're basing this on what we can see. And you're a member of the kingdom because the church is an outgrowth, an outpost, should I say, of the kingdom of God on earth. We don't exclude somebody or receive them. It's not based on some whim or on their personality, but it's based on what we can see of their fruit, as I've said, what we see. And so the conduct it's the conduct of the fornicator in 1 Corinthians 5 that is guiding Paul's decision and his judgment and the church's decision and judgment. And so go back there again, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 5. And so notice, it's the whole church that has the authority. Look at the beginning of verse 4. He says, when you are gathered together, and that's what we're doing right now. We're gathered here together. And so Paul is not acting alone, is he? He doesn't say, hey, I'm telling you, this is what I'm doing. He's saying, when you are gathered together, you're part of it. You're just as responsible as he is. The church has that responsibility. And they are responsible. All of you here that are members of this church are responsible for a punishment that is given. Go back over to 2 Corinthians and you'll see it even more clearly. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 and 6. So 2 Corinthians 2, 5, Paul writes, But if any have caused grief, and he's talking about this man back in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, 5, But if any may have caused grief, he has not grieved me, but in part, but I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such man is this punishment. And who afflicted it, which was afflicted by how many? One? He didn't say the one I afflicted it. Who afflicted the punishment on the man? The many. The church. Now, do you all see that? Amen? Amen. I need to know you're with me on that. So the church is involved. 
just as involved, if not more so, than Paul in what's going on here. So let me ask you, so this church is gathered together, they're inflicting that punishment, it's done publicly, and so what effect does that have on the church? Number one, it lets all of us know what? We are responsible for the spiritual condition of this assembly. All of us are. It's not one person's responsibility. That's one thing. And also that this is done publicly, it should be what? It should be a solemn warning to the sinner, a solemn warning that this step has to be taken for a public censure. And the third thing is that solemn warning and removal from fellowship should cause all of us to fear. It should have that effect. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.20, he says, Them that sin rebuke before all, that the rest also may fear. Should put a fear in you. He goes on to say in verse 5, now this verse is actually a very hard verse to interpret and, and know what it means. There's opinions all over the board by godly men on what Paul is saying. And so rather than trying to get into all that, I don't want to take the time to get into all the different views. and data. I'm just going to tell you what I believe it means. So he's saying, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so I hold to this view, that he is delivering them. And if someone else has another view, I'm not going to get in a fight over it. And, and it's no problem, all right? I'm just saying this is the view I hold to, that he's delivered over into the realm of the devil. I know the popular view has been turned over to Satan, and he's going to inflict the man with an illness. And some will say the destruction of the flesh means inflicted to, with an illness, that he eventually dies from it. That's, that's a very common view. But I don't know that I agree with that. Placed under the authority and realm of Satan and the principalities in power. So, let me go on to say, though, when he's put in that realm, he may very well get sick. He may suffer financial ruin, have mental attacks, just be in general misery. Because he's taken out of the realm of the kingdom of God. He's actually already placed himself out of that realm. It's just the church is declaring it. And Paul says, in my spirit, that's what's happening. We're turning him over to the devil. However you want to look at that. And that's so that God can perhaps, when he's in that realm, wake that person up. That's the purpose. And so there's only one other place that it's talked about. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul says, Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says, Whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And the interesting thing is, that word learn is where we get the word to train a child. So the devil is going to be God's tool to train that person. It ain't worth blaspheming. You're going to be messing in the wrong realm, and you don't want the devil being your master because he's a cruel master. And he's saying he's using the devil as a tool to instruct that he may, they may learn not to blaspheme. And I think that's what's going on here, the destruction of the flesh. I think the flesh is talking about his sinful nature because the reason I believe that is Paul generally, when he talks about flesh, flesh can be used in so many different ways. It can be talking about your physical body, but Paul commonly will use it as your, the sinful nature, however you want to say that. In Galatians 5, he'll talk about the works of the flesh, and he talks about then the spirit. And I think that's what he's saying here. The flesh is the sinful nature, the old man. Romans 6, he's saying, turn him over to the devil so that that old nature can be destroyed. 
Because if his literal flesh was destroyed and he died, how is he in the next book of 2 Corinthians going to ask them to bring him back in? That's going to be a little hard to do when he's in the grave. But the misery that he should be experiencing, however it's inflicted by the devil, living in the kingdom of darkness and knowing that he has been excluded from the kingdom of God, should have an effect to bring him to repentance. That he may be brought to repentance. There's no guarantee. So the purpose is not, listen, to utterly destroy or condemn the man, but to allow the possibility of salvation, is it not? We need to remember that. We'll talk about that. But look, look at it says. So to deliver such a one unto Satan, and the result of that is will be the destruction of his flesh, however you want to interpret that. I'm not going to argue with you over that. But here's the purpose. There's the result is the destruction of the flesh, but the purpose is delivering him to Satan. This is the purpose. That, the spirit, possibly, it's maybe, it's a subjunctive. It's not a guarantee that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate goal of church discipline. So he goes on in verse 6. He says, hey, you're boasting in verse 6. Your glory is not good. He says, don't you know? He's saying, don't you know? Aren't you aware that allowing this cancer to remain in your midst could destroy the whole church? That's what he's saying there. Your glory is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven? And what they would do, they would take a piece of that dough and they'd let it ferment and then they'd stick it in a later piece. And just that little piece would just have the whole thing fermented. And that's what he's saying. He's using that illustration. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And the way we would say that today in America is one rotten apple spoils the whole lot. It's the same idea. One little rotten apple, spoil them all. One little pinch of that leaven's going to ruin the whole loaf. He's saying, don't you know that? You should know that, he's saying, because he gives a therefore in, in verse 7. He says, therefore, because of that principle, purge out that old leaven. Cleanse it out. It's got to be gotten rid of entirely. Hose it out, bleach it out, whatever you've got to do to get rid of that leaven, that cancer. It has got to be gotten rid of entirely, Paul's saying, because if you don't get rid of it, it will infect everything. That's what he's saying. So listen, when Achan deliberately disobeyed God and took of the accursed thing and brought it into the camp of Israel, that was leaven. And that one man did what? He brought judgment on them all. One man did. And that's what we have going on here. And God looked and he talks. You go back and read that account. He talks about that one man's sin as belonging to everybody. Talks to him that way. It's everyone's sin. And you think, well, that doesn't seem fair. Listen, families, churches, God deals with people corporately. This individualistic thing is... America. It's not Bible. And so listen to Joshua 7, 13. Here's what he said, the Lord. There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel, and you cannot stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. And you know what Joshua said to Achan when Achan was finally exposed? He says, why have you troubled us? You one man have troubled all of us. 
Because until we deal with you, and he ended up under a pile of rocks. And not only that, his family. I said, people get hurt when someone sins. It's not isolated. His family ended up, and all his animals and everything he had ended up under a pile of rocks. That's what happened. And so why do we remove unrepentant sinners? And he tells us here, verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven. Here's why, that you may be a new lump as you are. This is what you are, unleavened. You're not supposed to have leaven in you. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. It's so we can be as a church what God has made us to be as a church. A holy, unleavened church. He says that's what we are. And so he says, because of that, you need to get rid of anything that's trying to make it not that way. And so we should have enough care for our own church and the glory of God that we'll do that. And that's the basis. And what's the basis? We just heard it Sunday. What is the basis that we can be a holy church, an unleavened church? We just talked about it. Look, it's right there. The end of verse 7. For even Christ, our Passover, he sacrificed for us. The shed blood of the Lamb is the basis that we can be a holy people. That is the only basis. His blood. And so we need to see ourselves as God sees us. And I don't know that, that we really do all the time. And how does he see us? We sing the song. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness, no longer in darkness. It shouldn't be in our midst. Instead, we are what? We should be here in his marvelous light. Shouldn't we? That's what God is saying right there in seven. Purge out that leaven. It shouldn't be part of us. Get rid of it that you may be as you're supposed to be, a new lump, unleavened. Why? Out of honor and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ who died and shed his blood so that we could be that way for the church. So he goes on in verse 8 and moves. Here's a case where he moves on from that individual and he moves on to the church as a whole individually. The whole church he addresses them. And he said, because of that great sacrifice, it's almost like a little aside. He said, because of that sacrifice at the end of verse 7, he says, we need to keep that feast continually every day in the present. That is how we need to live as an unleavened church. And he's saying they're not with the leaven, the old leaven of malice and wickedness, but we should live now as a church daily with, as an unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here's the deal. Justification, the bloodshed, and sanctification, which is what that unleavened bread is talking about, they go hand in hand. You don't have the blood as your justification if you don't have a sanctified life following it. They come together. You don't have one without the other. That is what he's telling us here. So the death of Christ, why? Has freed us from sin, and we should live as if we're free from sin. And he's not here tonight. But I sat there last night at prison and just been going through Romans. He's hammering those guys on that. And I'm thinking, man, I just bring you here and let you preach this part of this message. It was good. I thought, man, that is really good. You could have listened to him. He goes on in verses 9 to 11, and he's saying, hey, I wrote, wrote another letter to you previously that you're not to company or fellowship with fornicators, but he's saying, I'm not talking about the ones in the world. He said, otherwise, you, you all are going to have to move to a monastery, which is what they, some of them have done. 
He's saying, no, I'm not saying that. He's saying, I'm saying if anybody that calls himself a brother is a fornicator or a drunkard or covetous, he says, don't associate with them, don't company with them, and you don't even sit down and eat with them. You disfellowship them is what he's saying. You don't treat them as if they are a member in good standing. Is that what he says? Verse 11, I've written on you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, covetous, an idolater, or an abusive person, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, he says, with such and one, no, not to eat. He says, for what? I'm not going to judge those that are without. God judges them. He says, but you do. You should be judging those that are within. But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, he says, put away from yourselves that wicked person. And you know what that is there? That is Deuteronomy talk. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the law. And that's what he's quoting. That, that second half of verse 13, that is out of Deuteronomy. Five times in Deuteronomy, it talks about you put away from your company that wicked person. And I'll give you a couple of them. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says, If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then shall they both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. And here's how he ends it. So shall you put away evil from Israel. That's how it happens. And here's another one out of the five. Deuteronomy 24, 7. If a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel and makes merchandise of him or sells him, then that thief shall die. And you shall put away evil away from you. So we don't stone people now, do we? We're not a government living under God's rule, are we? Is, we, we don't have that authority. So what do we do? They're put out. That's what Paul said. You put that person out. They are out. So in conclusion, we can clearly see according to Jesus and the Apostle Paul with Matthew 16, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, that we here at Shelbyville Christian Assembly, this local church, have a responsibility to keep this body pure and holy, to remove any leaven or cancer that would infect, infect and affect the entire body. Because if we do, it will eventually destroy it. That's what Paul said. A little leaven will leaven, will leaven the whole lump. So does that mean anybody that we don't consider perfect, we just get them out of here? Is, is that what we're talking about? I mean, you guys, you know that's not what we're talking about, are we? Because all of us, aren't we? Are all of us not struggling with something? Right? <laughs> Paul himself said he wasn't perfect. But look at, at this chapter right here. What we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 5, we're talking about sin that is outward. We're not talking about some guy's thoughts or motives that we can't always weigh, right? So we're talking about sin that is outward, it is serious, and it is unrepentant. Those three things are involved here with this man. And it can't be allowed to remain for the respect and honor that is due the Lord Jesus Christ is first and foremost the reason that that man cannot be allowed to stay in that church. And the second reason is the spiritual welfare of the entire body. Its purity and its power would be compromised by allowing him to stay. And the testimony of the church to the community and the world. You let somebody like that stay in your midst and guess what you've lost? You're no longer salt and light in the eyes of the world. They need to be removed. And last but not least, the eternal welfare of the sinning member themselves. 
So he needs, by putting him out, he needs to see the seriousness of his sin. And he needs the church to pray that God will grant him repentance and restoration. That's the only way it's going to come. Through prayer and God granting it. So we kind of worked our way through that chapter. Amen? Amen.